Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Hi, everybody. Welcome to a new edition of Memphis Metropolis. I'm your host, Emily Trenum, and today I'm excited to welcome A.M. O'Malley from the Urban Art Commission. Who's the op- she's the Operations and Development Manager. We're going to be talking about the Neighborhood Art Initiative, among other things. And then after the break, I'm going to be talking to Cole Bradley, who's going to be one of our regular contributors. And we're going to be talking about public art and neighborhoods as well, as well as some other things. So that's the show for today. So welcome, AM. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad you're here. So I want to start out with, so one of my missions in life, and probably the listeners are sick of hearing this because I say this every week, is to, is to you know, demystify jargon. Mm-hmm. But I just wanted, before we start talking about the Urban Art Commission, I just wanted to sort of talk for a minute about public art. Yeah. And I guess there is small P and big P. Um, you know, you're in the community, you see art. Sometimes it's informal, sometimes it's formal. Um, and of course, you guys are called Urban Art Commission, not Public Art Commission. So just tell me to you what public art is. That's a great question. I think that the term public art really refers to any art that's in the public realm, regardless of whether it's situated on public or private property or whether it's been purchased by public or private money. So that would include all media and that would include all origin. And that includes, I guess, I mean, now graffiti's a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, there's graffiti competitions and graffiti festivals. But I guess in your definition, that also includes sort of unsanctioned. That's probably not the right word, but unfunded um, <laughs> graffiti. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, um, it's evolved in the public view. And I think that's probably even accepted by people who are institutions of the public art sphere. Yeah, I agree with that. So again, before we talk about Urban Art Commission, just tell us a little bit about your story. I know you're relatively new to Memphis. You worked in public art in some other cities. Just interested to hear about your background and how that sort of came to bear in your current position. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. So I lived in Portland, Oregon for 13 years and I worked for a small nonprofit there called the Independent Publishing Resource Center. And we were an independent media organization. So uh, empowering folks to create independent media of all forms. And sometimes that was um, some smaller scale public art, but primarily print materials. So my background my background is in zines. I started making zines in 1992 and that sort of evolved into a passion for um, access to art for everyone and um, subverting sort of what the, the the mainstream institutions thought 
was qualified as art and who was qualified to make art. So that's sort of my um, core belief there and why I'm so, so interested in public art because, you know, as you know, it just, it's free for everyone and um, allows folks to see themselves, ideally see themselves reflected uh, in their neighborhoods. And I had the experience of moving to Memphis and just um, feeling like I was, you know, I just sort of fell into a really good place. Um, and a big part of that was finding my way to the Urban Art Commission. I started off at Cross Town Arts um, and worked there briefly and love all the folks there, but found that the position at Urban Art Commission was just more suited to my current interests. Well, that's very cool. I love, I'm a print person and even now, and I'm older, so that's probably part of it, but I love zines and have been to the Crosstown, that little zine festival a mm -hmm. couple of times. And I always <laughs> spend not that much money, but come home with way too many things. Yeah. And it's super fun. And, and you know, when I was um, in high school and college, I mean, it really was the pro totally dating myself here, but it was pre-digital. Mm -hmm. And so zines, especially music zines, were, they were it. And um, it was just, I, but I still love them. And I love print. A lot of people stopped making zines when um, the internet got big, you know, and started making blogs and having MySpace pages and all of that stuff instead. And I just have always loved analog and printmaking. And it, it evolved for me into more fine press sort of things like letterpress and some screen printing and things like that. But um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a zinester for life for sure. Let's talk about urban art commission. I probably, you know, a lot of our listeners are familiar with it. Um, but just give us the sort of snapshot of what the organization is, what its programs are. And also I'm, kind of interested. I know over the past couple of years, um, you know, the mission hasn't changed, but it's evolved some. So I'm interested a little bit in that journey to where you are today. Great. Thank you. Yeah. I, um, I appreciate the chance to sort of talk about who we are because I think there's a lot of mis, uh, misconception about urban art commission. Um, a lot of folks think that we're actually a city um, uh, department, I guess, and uh, we're actually an independent nonprofit, um, have been in existence for approximately 22 years, and have managed approximately 120 public art projects across um, the Memphis metropolitan area. And, and yeah, we, you know, the original mission is actually completely different. Uh, two years ago in 2018, we underwent a very long process with the help of beloved community from New Orleans to, to re-envision the mission statement, um, vision and values. And then we have a strategic plan uh, with three main goals that we are currently sort of in the mid, in the thick of implementing. Um, and so the old mission statement was to enhance the cultural vibrancy of community through the development of public art. And that was the mission statement for the first, you know, 20 years of the organization. And I think after 20 years, it's always a good idea as an organization to look at your mission statement and, and decide whether or not it needs updating. And 
the UAC board and team uh, really wanted to drill down to the heart of the work that we do in our mission statement. And um, so the new mission statement is um, Urban Art Commission is a nonprofit organization committed to creating opportunities for artists and neighborhoods to connect and shape spaces through public art. So the difference there, I think, is just a little bit more of a concrete um, explanation of what we do and puts artists first because so much of the work that we are interested in doing is creating those opportunities for artists. Well, and putting artists first and also specifically naming neighborhoods, yes. which we're, which we're going to talk about today. So, um, and so what are the, um, I think people have heard of the percent for art, but what are the, just the kind of basic program areas you guys work in if you're organized that way? Sure. So we, we have three major, what we call portfolios. And basically that just means, um, you know, a scope of work, and the one is percent for art program, and that is city-funded um, programming, and it's on public property, and it makes up a little over half of the funding for projects that we do. The, that would be like a, at a school or a library, yeah. So arts associated with those projects, right? And it, we're under the we're under the uh, Department of Engineering, actually. Um, in their budget and we so whenever there is a renovation done or a new construction they have generally a budget for some public art and we manage those projects we don't make any of the decisions about who um, who is commissioned or, or what the art looks like we simply facilitate the selection committee process which I can talk more about what that means and then we help manage we help the artist manage their project through milestones. And that's the that's the way that we do all of our projects that are both public and private. So the other two portfolios are private projects. So right now we're doing um, public art in the airport remodel and reconstruction and the convention center. Um, and so those are those are a whole other that's a whole other ball of wax, even though it's closely um, associated with the city, it's still a private contract. And then we have grant funded programming. So we, that's a much smaller, you know, smaller pot of funds, but that's where we get to get a little bit more creative and do innovate a little bit more and commission new media, temporary work, things like that. So, so that's sort of the three portfolios we work from. Um, but the process really remains the same throughout across all three. Well, actually, that raises kind of another question, which is, I think people do think of public art as first of all murals, mm -hmm. and then and then second of all, you know, sculpture or hardscape. That's probably not the the right word. Um, and but um, just touch on some of the other media that you now work in that beyond those things that people really associate with public art. Sure. We, so yeah, most people, when they think of public art, they think of permanent art or as permanent as we can make it. Right. Um, and, but there's a whole other realm of work. That's um, what we call temporary. And that could be performance. That could be a new media. So, maybe a light display or some sort of um, 
movie projection on the side of a building. Uh, and those are projects that we we don't have public funding for those types of projects right now. But we did do a, a project uh, recently that was grant funded primarily called the Revisiting Pro, uh, the Revisiting Program. And that was um, where we wanted to highlight some of the work that we've uh, managed over the last 22 years. And so we asked artists artists to create response temporary work to um, some of the public art. So Yvonne Bobo had a sculpture in Peabody Park, has a sculpture in Peabody Park, and the uh, Frog Squad jazz um, band cr- composed and performed a piece in response to her sculpture. So that's oh, sort wow. of... Um, Very and cool. Then, and, you know, and we invited the public and people were, you know, hung out on blankets and watched this jazz performance. And, and that's really what we mean by, you know, new media or, or temporary work. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis and WYXRFM. And we're talking to A.M. O'Malley from the Urban Art Commission. So that's a great segue to... Um, the Neighborhood Arts Initiative. Now, I love this. Neighborhoods are my passion. And I love this project because I'm a believer that that citizens ought to have influence and input and say over the spaces that they spaces and places they inhabit. Um, and most of the time we're thinking, I'm thinking through the lens of a neighborhood. That's just how my mind works. So, um, so just tell us what this program is about, how it's different from, from your previous approaches, kind of what was the motivation and, and then we'll talk about where it is now. And maybe the last, I know this, we're doing, you're doing it a second time. So talk about the first year. So traditionally in, in urban art commissions history, we've, our, the bulk of our budget has come from the city. We're, we're changing that. The dial is, is uh, turning on that a little bit. But, um, you know, and so that sort of describes that work, that percent for artwork, which is a sculpture and a mural on a piece of publicly city-owned property. Um, and, and so we always know through that funding where the piece of art is going to be because it's determined by where renovations and new construction and things like that are. Um, So that really creates a sort of, uh, it it takes, it de-emphasizes neighborhood wants, I guess, just by default, um, in my opinion. More top um, down. Yeah, more top down. And then also we do a call to artists. And so then the artist really is leading the project through their creative vision. And while we have always tried very hard to work with the artists to engage with neighborhoods and with the stakeholders in the neighborhoods, uh, we found that, you know, honestly, the capacity and the timelines and the milestones really sort of push can push that away without greater support. Um, so, so, and that's complicated and we could, we could talk about that all day, the sort of the problems that are there um, that have to do with money and timelines and milestones and all of those things um, and public money and, and all of that. Um, but then, so what we did with uh, last year 
was we started a project with funding from the Assisi Foundation uh, for a project we called Neighborhood Art Initiative. And what we wanted to do there was rather than start with a place and that sort of top-down approach, we wanted to start with, um, with the people, right? So we made a call for community organizations, after-school programs, um, CDCs, you know, community development organizations of all sorts. We went all around the city and did presentations at different neighborhood meetings and, you know, sort of let people know we were doing this. And we just asked people to come to us with a proposal for something they would like to see in their neighborhood. So the, so the funded projects, we, we ended up funding, um, four projects, um, Carpenter Art Garden was one, and they started a uh, a mural mentorship program as part of you know as part of their um, existing program. That was an early sort of one of the parameters was that there be an existing program to support it. Um, and really, the reasoning behind that was we wanted to make sure that the projects had support from the from the neighborhoods, from the people who lived in the neighborhoods. Um, another project is Gooch Park, um, Cherokee Heights. So the Cherokee Heights art is is a little different because really they just wanted they were just proud of their neighborhood or they are proud of their neighborhood and they just wanted signage to let people know that they were um, in Cherokee Heights. So um, we really kept things broad in that way, and you know that gets at something I'm passionate about, which is this idea of well. The, most people are calling call it creative place making, but I really prefer the term creative place keeping and thinking about, you know, what are the assets that are already, what are the cultural assets already in this neighborhood? And how do we engage, you know, the people who live here, the people who are doing community development here and artists and business owners and development interests to work together to really, um, you know, create art that is going to um, do the most for, you know, all of the, all of the interests that are involved in that group of people. Um, yeah. So it takes longer. So Gooch Park, what did they do? And then um, was there another one? So Neighborhood Art Initiative funded, um, like I said, the, yeah, so the Cherokee Heights Civic Club did the signage, Carpenter Art Garden did the mural apprenticeship program, the South Memphis Alliance in partnership with the Dragonfly Collective, Play Where You Stay, um, and the Work CDC are creating a new soccer complex and uh, neighborhood gathering space in a vacant property in Soulsville. Um, and then the Gooch Park project is the work of Hug Park Friends, and they're trying to, they're, they're working, they work primarily to transform Gooch Park into a safe, clean space for sporting events and neighborhood festivals. And so they're looking for artists um, interested in creating a contemporary mural there on the park's pool building. So, so those, all four of those projects are still in process right now. And um, the Gooch Park artist actually is is um, just about to be announced. I can't announce it yet, 
um, this, but hopefully this week we'll be able to announce the announce the artist selected for Gooch Park. Um, and then, and then the South Memphis Alliance project also is not um, hasn't gone through the selection process all the way yet. So the neighborhood comes to you with the project, and then once you make the selection, then the neighborhood, I guess, selects the the artist or the creative team that's going to implement their idea. Exactly. And some of the organizations already had an artist in mind. And so, for example, Carpenter Art Garden um, had some artists in mind. And then some, like the Cherokee Heights Civic Club, we really worked closely with them to develop a call to artists. And then, and same with actually all, all of all three of the other ones besides Carpenter Art Garden. But we left it open so that you know, if, if neighborhood organizations already had an artist that they wanted to work with, we were open with that. Um, and then we also did a lot of work helping folks develop their idea further um, and helping folks develop even just their proposals. We had a lot of one-on-one -on -one meetings with neighborhoods, helping them, you know, sort of get a little bit more of a solid idea for what they would like to see in their neighborhood. So, which brings us to Neighborhood Art Initiative 2.0, um, which is now a, is a project that's publicly funded through the Percent for Art project, which is really exciting. Um, the first NAI was privately funded through a CC. And so we're doing a, the, we're doing a very similar project. The only big difference is that we are also budgeting for a community organizer to work within those communities um, to help what we're calling with what we're calling the discovery process. Uh, yeah. And there'll be, there'll be an organizer for each neighborhood. Yes. Yes. So is the, I know the, and I don't want to get too much into politics because mm -hmm. we know how that can be dangerous, yeah. but I, but I know in terms of the percent for our program, you know, the, the overtime, there needs to be things in every council district and for good reason, you know, you want all, you want all the city to get mm -hmm. art. I totally get that. But is, is there, um, is any of that woven into the selection process that you're going to try to get as many different neighborhoods as possible? So you're not going to be everywhere, but is that um, a theme or a thread at all? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. One of our big goals as an organization with our strategic plan is to expand the scope of our work. And that, that, that word scope is kind of threefold. Um, but one of those pieces is, is geographic uh, scope. So we, if you look at a map of public art in Memphis, which you can on our website, um, we have an interactive map. And that's just the projects we've managed, but it's it's really reflected with all public art. It's there's a big corridor that's sort of midtown to downtown, and there's a a huge underrepresentation of public art in other districts and in other neighborhoods. And so we are always have our eye on expanding that. Now I will say though that we are not we're not limiting calls 
or we're not limiting proposals from neighborhoods where there's a high concentration of public art, but we are definitely, we have our eye on the Memphis 3.0 project. When we're thinking about this, we have our eye on the, on where we already have public art. And then of course the, the third piece there is that it does need to be on city owned property because it's publicly funded. So that's going to, you know, cause a whole other level of complication. Yeah, that's a challenge because, as you know, all neighborhoods don't have similar engagement infrastructures. All those organizations you mentioned that got funded, and uh, they're all great, so this isn't at all a criticism, but they're all relatively high capacity. Um, they've all either got staff or they've got very strong volunteer leadership. And yeah, how do you get engage, you know, Nutbush or Parkway Village or places that probably don't have a lot of public art, but that and, and may may not have any kind of a, you know, strong community associations or mm -hmm. anything like that. That's a, I know you don't have to be a community association to go after these, but that's a, for sure, a challenge for you, I know. Yes, it's a huge challenge, I think, across the, across the nation with public art, really, and, and how to engage working adults is another layer there. And because, you know, we have seniors, citizens tend to be more engaged, and then folks maybe in college or, or of college age or high school age are, are more engaged, and then working adults, uh, you know, folks between the age of 30 to 50, 55, 60, I guess, um, are much harder to get to. And so we're always strategizing. I actually just went to a, well, not just, but this last fall, I went to a creative place uh, making conference and I attended several workshops on how to reach people who don't have a walkable neighborhood who, so you, you know, you can't really find them very easily without knocking on their doors. And, you know, there's all, all sorts of problems there. And it's true. And that's a big reason why we wanted to or, um, hire an organizer for each of these projects in the hope that they could spend the time that we as an organization either don't have the knowledge of that neighborhood or don't have the time or capacity to do some of that work. Um, that was, you know, the success stories that we've seen across, you know, nationally are really when, when community organizers are engaged in that way, because everybody knows you, you need, you need someone who's plugged in with the people who live in the neighborhood in order to really get a good idea of what they actually want. Um, it's, it's incredibly difficult and time consuming and, but everybody I think recognizes the value in it. Well, and a lot of these neighborhoods that aren't walkable don't have um, community gathering places. I did an engagement project not that long ago in Hickory Hill. Mm -hmm. And really, the only gathering place is the community center, which is wonderful. But, you know, of course, it's only, you know, it's got a lot of frequent flyers, people that mm -hmm. use it regularly, but it's probably, you know, less than 5% of the residents of Hickory Hill. And there was, wasn't. There weren't coffee shops. It was difficult, but I want to ask you about a really cool project you just recently announced, which was the Postal Workers Project. So just tell me, tell us a little bit about that. I just thought it was really neat. Yeah, um, 
Thank you. We So we, in response to COVID, launched a project called Bridging the Distance, where we pro- provided mini project uh, funding for artists in Memphis. For Memphis-based artists, we did $2,500 project projects. And so, so we had already done one round of that, and we're just releasing a second round when we were approached by... Um, a Memphian, a native Memphian who now lives in the Bay Area, uh, Angelica McKinley, and she had been already doing this project and she felt like it was a really good fit with Bridging the Distance. And so we partnered up and her focus really was about um, highlighting the role of the Postal Service in, you know, connecting us through COVID and and really getting, especially with um voting and mail-in ballots and, and how important they are to that work and specifically um, black and brown postal workers. And so we commissioned with Angelica six artists to create portraits of postal workers from the Lamar branch here in Memphis. And so we've been rolling that out last week and this and we'll continue to do this week telling their stories. We did interviews with them and then uh, we also have billboards across uh, Memphis that are digital billboards that are also displaying those images. I have not seen those. Where yeah. are they? Well, you know, there weren't any digital billboards available in the close in. So there's one on 240, there's one by the airport, and there's one um, in East Memphis. Uh, well, no, that's the 241. Then there's one downtown. So that was a really cool added element. And then we're also hoping to make prints and give some of those proceeds, figure out how those proceeds could benefit the post office and the artists. And I I happen to believe that digital billboards are a blight on the landscape, yeah. personally. <laughs> so yeah. I do not approve of that part of the project. <laughs> the body of work is great. So, so tell us, first of all, two-part question, mm-hmm. where can people see um, examples of this and other work. Um, and then also how can people like, if neighborhoods want to find out about how they can apply for this, uh, the neighborhood art initiative 2.0, um, at some point you're going to be issuing applications. How can people sign up to find out about that? So on our website, which is UACMEM, so UACMEM.org, there's um, backslash opportunities. There's um, the call for the request for proposals will be there. We'll also be blasting it across on our website and across our social medias and that sort of thing. Um, and then, you know, people are always welcome to, to call us or contact us. We have an info at uacmem.org um, email address. Um, and then for the the postal project, we actually it's on our website, and all of the artists and the postal workers are are on there, featured on there, and that's um, uacmem.org backslash um, USPS. So that's really easy. And um, then we're gonna be doing some prints, and then the original work is actually hanging at the Lamar Branch postal post office. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so if you see if you make it over there, um, and I, I wanted to call out the artists too. So Amber George, uh, 
Quintavius Tunkey, Worship, Jamon Bullock, Maya Sane, Darius Davis, Grant Butler, also known as Fitz, um, are all the, the artists there. And the work is, um, is really stunning. And you can see the original picture of the postal worker and then the artist interpretation um, on our Instagram account, which is Urban Art Memphis. And then on our website, you can see the longer interviews with all of the um, postal workers. So, yeah, I would encourage everyone to really check that out. It's, the work is stunning, but also it just, you know, it just spoke to my heart. So, yeah. which is yeah. what you, what you want public art yeah. to do, I think. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, there's, well, it, it, I think that it, um, postal workers are one of those groups that sort of disproportionately are affected by systemic racial disparities and COVID. And so, you know, we just wanted to celebrate them. Well, I mean, you, I mean, this is not a new idea, but all the emphasis on essential workers, Mm -hmm. um, there's been a a lot of that focuses on healthcare workers who of course are essential and putting their lives um, on the line every day. And we salute that, but there's a lot of other essential workers that are, you know, just, plugging away, bring in your mail, and um, we need to, we need to tell them that we value them. Yes, I agree. So, so, well, thank you so much for coming, A.M. It's been great. So um, I've been talking to A.M. O'Malley, who's the Operations and Development Officer for Urban Art Commission, and stay tuned because after the break, I'm going to have Cole Bradley, one of our commentators. We're also going to talk more about urban art and neighborhoods and probably find a few other interesting things to talk about as well. So stand by. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at WYXR.org. And while you're there, please consider making a donation. We're a brand new station lifting up everything Memphis, and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis. I'm Emily Trenum. And in this part of the show, I'm thrilled to introduce another member of our regular rotating commentators, which is Cole Bradley. Cole's my partner in crime at High Ground News. We both work there and also is an anthropologist and think it's going to add a lot to the show. So welcome, Cole. Thanks, Emily. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to start doing this with you. So just tell us a little bit about your background. Okay, so uh, I'm a lifelong Memphian. I was born here, uh, lived most of my life in Raleigh. I went to school in high school in Bartlett because we did that thing, you know, where everybody lied about their address uh, before the schools merged. I'm shocked. I know, right? So I have some experience in that area, but mostly a a Raleigh kid. And, um, you know, I went to school kind of later in life. I worked at FedEx in the hub. And so I kind of had those Memphis experiences, went back to school. And like you said, I got a degree um, in sociology and anthropology in my undergrad. And then I did graduate work in anthropology. But you know, my work is applied anthropology, which means I don't 
write papers and sit in you know, academic settings, I work in the community. And so most of my work has been centered around community development and community engagement in various neighborhoods, uh, which I think is a lot of what we do at High Ground too, even though it's a even though it's an, uh, an online publication, an online magazine, we still do a ton of community work. But uh, the rest of my work's been done in kind of business and organizational anthropology. I've worked with a lot of companies uh, from Coppertone and Clarendon. I've also worked with nonprofits, um, the public library system, Memphis Public Libraries, and other groups like that to basically create strategies of whatever. You know, you called me, I'm a people person in the sense that I study people and use what I learn from them, from actively engaging different um, groups, whoever that might be, uh, in figuring out what their problem is and how they want to solve it. Well, plus we both share a deep love of neighborhoods. That's one of the things I like about you. And for our listeners, one of Cole and I have, you know, a relationship that involved bickering some. And one of the things we like to bicker about is neighborhood boundaries. Oh man, all day, every day, right? I think, you know, one thing I do appreciate in that argument, even though we disagree on boundary lines a lot, is that we're both, we're both open to and know that communities create boundaries and those boundaries aren't always solid. And that's okay. You know, how, how people relate to their space and their community can be an individual and a group experience that not everyone agrees on. And that's fine. I do appreciate that we both acknowledge that flexibility as we fight over hard boundaries. Well, absolutely. And I'll tell you, and I don't know if we ever discussed this, but um, one of the things that's always, as a planner, one of the things I've always found frustrating about Memphis is that there's not really any official neighborhood map. I realize it's hard to get to that point because you've got to build consensus. But from a planning perspective, that can it's really a barrier. And like if you go to Chicago, like you can get a map of Chicago. There's like 75 neighborhoods. They're all named. I'm sure there's not always agreement, but it's uh, it's just a little neater. And it does help from an engagement perspective. But that's it. You know, if that's a discussion for another day. It is, although I will say it's part of our culture. I think here more so than a lot of cities, it's these neighborhood identities are part of the culture and neighborhoods within neighborhoods, sometimes within another neighborhood, you know, that people I will identify with multiple layers of community. And I find that fascinating. Well, you and I have just finished doing some work with High Ground in North Memphis. And one of the, one of the, and a perfect example of that is Hyde Park. Like Hyde Park is actually, you know, a distinct neighborhood, but it's also in this larger neighborhood that's called Hollywood. It's also called Hollywood Springdale. And people, even people who live in Hyde Park don't call it Hyde Park all the time. Right. Some of them call it Hollywood Springdale. So, And then all of that, all of that sits within North Memphis, right? So people can identify I'm from North Memphis, but then they'll dig down and they'll say I'm from Douglas or I'm from Hyde Park. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So it is, it's layered. It's very layered and it's, and it's interesting. And we both love to sort of dig in and learn about those neighborhood histories and and the people who were doing work in them right now. Yeah, absolutely. But today I want to talk a little more about public art. Uh, earlier in the show, I had A.M. O'Malley from Urban Art Commission on, and we were talking about their neighborhood art initiative, which gives neighborhood residents more, not only more voice in pub, the public art that's going in their neighborhood, but actually 
empowers them and funds them to decide what kind of art project they want in the neighborhood, helps them select the artist and helps the project get done. So um, anyway, that's a, a really great initiative. We talked about that earlier, but I wanted to sort of back up a little bit to a more to a higher level with you, you know, over the past couple of years, I think there's been a little bit of a reckoning in the public art arena um, that really came out of some uh, murals that were put up in a lower income neighborhood, kind of in the Glenview neighborhood that uh, some residents and then some elected officials took exception to. I don't think that was universal, those views, but certainly it prompted a lot of discussion. I didn't ask AM about it, was not, they, they were, that organization was impacted, wasn't quote unquote their project. And I, I didn't have long enough, that's a whole, but I wanted to talk to you about it because um just to kind of get your perspectives on on how you think that's changed the way public art is now being done here, and then um, and then why it's just so important to have had that discussion so we can lift up the resonant voice. Yeah, I think you know you just gave a perfect example. UAC's new uh, program where they are involving those residents, not just on deciding what the art is, but also deciding who is that person they want to work with? Who is that artist that's coming in and representing their community? You know, that level of input is new. And, you know, they could always take it farther, right? You know, to me, when you have community members creating the art themselves, when it comes wholly out of the community, that's, you know, that's the ideal, right? But they're a whole heck of a lot closer than they used to be. And like you said, it's not, that was not their snafu, but everyone learned something from that. And to your question about, you know, the importance of doing sort of community engagement to that level, you know, art has always been a form of expression of identity and of community. From our very earliest days, one of the first things we did was paint on walls. And we did that to share, to communicate who we were, who we wanted to be, you know, who were the divine forces in our lives that moved us. There were a lot of reasons, but we created art very early on in our evolution as, as humans because it's part of us. Creativity is part of us. And it, like I said, it's part of cultural identity. It's one of the only, the handful of uh, cultural universals that slides across all cultures. We make art. And so for a community to feel like the art that not just represents them, but also they got to look at that every day, you know, and to feel like that doesn't represent them and it's not in line with their values. It's antithetical to culture quite frankly. It's antithetical to group identity. And so that's why it's important. It's important that people be involved in the things that will mark, physically mark their communities. Well, I agree with that, but, and I'm, I'm not an artist. Um, you're not, you're married to an artist, but I do sometimes wonder about sort of the subjective nature. Like I'm thinking about that, um, that, you know, the Chelsea flood wall, yes. which, um, I mean, that was, you know, mural artists came from around the country to do that. And that just, you know, really, really blew me away. I've taken all kinds of people up there, you know, national foundations and family members. It just really blew me away um, how great it was, the diversity of the artists. Now that was at least the initial phase was done without any input in the, from the community 
as far as I know. Right. And, um, but I mean, I guess I'm just, you and I agree, but I'm still sort of wondering out loud about how, um, you know, should residents say, yes, we like that. No, we don't. Um, and that kind of a grand, um, that kind of a grand transformational kind of project where you're pushing people to, you know, see art in new ways? You know, it's a, that's a very layered question, right? So when we talk about that Chelsea retaining wall, uh, I think it's great. You think it's great, but community members weren't involved in that initial decision. Now it's not as offensive as that other one, right? People found that legitimately offensive because they felt that it was against moral values and some other things. This wall doesn't have that same sort of passion behind it that people would object, but it's not like anybody went out and polled the community and said, do you actually like this thing? You know, there's a difference between hating something and being like, meh, I didn't really have a voice in that. You know, to me, anything that sits in the public realm, any shared public space, community members who are utilizing that space should be involved. And so be that be that um, art or sort of aesthetics or be that functionality. I think the parks are a really good example. Now, I do think, you know, the park system tries to get community input often. And there's always room for improvement, but I think they do a pretty decent job of at least attempting to get input, right? But I think the parks are one example of an opportunity to figure out ways to connect to community members better. You know, I think one thing I see is that in a lot of public sort of public approval scenarios where officials are trying to get approval by community or input from community um one of the big things is that the way that goes about the way they go about advertising is online. We're so online these days, but in some of these communities, that's just not going to work. And I do think, again, they do some outreach that way. And there's always public, physical public meetings. But how are you advertising that to the people who, you know, are low income, maybe working multiple jobs, um, may not have consistent access to the Internet? There's just a lot of factors that go in when you have a community or a city like Memphis that's struggling with such pervasive poverty. And those are really the people who need to be most involved in these public, uh, public policy and public space conversations. Well, I agree. And that's, that's, uh, I think, wrestling with how you do that is part of what we're, I'm hoping we can talk about more on this program, because, I mean, there's a huge challenge, because a lot of those kind of decisions about place and neighborhoods are very technical. And when I was at um, and my last job, I had this category of things I called boring but important. And I was thinking about starting a new segment on Memphis Metropolis called boring but important because some of these decisions, especially as it relates to land use or transportation, they're very technical, but they're incredibly important. And the impacts are long term. Yes. And it's not, I mean, if you make some park improvements and not really what the neighborhood wanted most of the time, I'm not saying they would get redone, but they could. But we would put a road down. Um, or if you, um, you know, tear down some buildings and build something else, it's different. I mean, those are talking about decades. Um, and so the decisions are very important, but they're hard. Not only are there accessibility issues like you described, um, but also they're just con um, communicating about those in a way 
that everyone can understand. And it's not really even a literacy issue. I mean, even people, you know, it doesn't even really matter how much education you have. I mean, it's technical. It's a whole separate language. Yeah, it's technical literacy, right? And I think this has been something, this particular barrier has been something that has been used against uh, commu- marginalized communities and also has just not like you said, people can't take advantage of this, right? When you, it's not about low literacy, it's about technical literacy. And you have to run in these circles. You have to know this jargon. You have to know how to stand in front of people who make policy decisions. And, you know, folks who aim to take advantage of marginalized neighborhoods have long known that these communities struggle to have that agency within these systems and within these uh, procedures and policies. And, but when we come when we talk about this, it's not so much that people are intentionally trying to um, to disinvest these folks from the process. It's that they're just easy to overlook, and it's hard, right? It's hard to take people who are folks who have been disenfranchised from this knowledge, who have been removed from these processes, and teach them how to have agency themselves. I think this is a conversation that uh, when we look at Orange Mound with Juice Orange Mound and Brittany Thornton, they did some workshops a bit back. Was it Urban Land Commission? Urban Land Institute. Yeah, Urban Land Institute. They did some workshops not too far back where the goal was to teach community members who were interested how to do some of these more technical things and how to represent themselves, right? But that's an exception and not a rule. Well, I I did some workshops several years ago on, you know, what's the land of land use control board? What's board of adjustment? What's the difference? And and then you know how you interact with that whole land use process. This these go to council. These do not. It's really complicated. So, so if you're just joining us, listeners, I am talking to Cole Bradley on Memphis Metropolis. I'm Emily Trenum, and you're listening to WYXR 91.7 FM. So, Cole, let's talk a little bit about high ground. You know, our focus is on neighborhoods, but there's been a lot of challenges as it relates to COVID. You know, people are talk tired of talking about COVID, but in reality, um, our neighborhoods are being impacted significantly. And as tired as we are of it, it's these impacts are not going away. And I feel like we've done a good job of lifting up some of the, not only some of the uh, the impacts of COVID, but also some of the solutions, some of the organizations that are working. So, so just tell us briefly about that. I'm thinking about you know, the environmental just, justice story we wrote that I thought was very interesting. And then we've done a number of things around housing as it relates to uh, the impact it's, COVID is having on people who live in our neighborhoods. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think bottom line is in these communities that are already so, um, pillaged, quite frankly. You know, we talk about it in terms of being disinvested and we use all this kind of light language, but the reality is resources were taken from these communities uh, to benefit other communities. And we know what those lines were drawn on. So we know that our neighborhoods that we tend to focus on are low income. They're majority black, although some have had Latino and white as well. Um, They are lots of seniors, lots of disinvestment or 
flight in terms of businesses and healthcare facilities and all of these other things. There are transportation issues. The list goes on, right? And so when you're talking about these communities and what COVID is doing, well, first off, you have higher percentages of people who are frontline workers. So, and who are uh, shift workers who have been most susceptible to being laid off. So you've got more people who are being uh, at risk for COVID, more people being laid off. There's financial issues all over the place. Well, when you're renting, which the majority of people in these neighborhoods are renting, uh, and most of them, let me rephrase that, then you've got more housing instability, higher housing costs than buying in a lot of places in Memphis. You've got unstable housing and unhealthy housing. That was one of the stories that we covered was, you know, toxic homes create pre-existing conditions. And that's what makes you susceptible to uh, extreme COVID cases and, and death due to COVID. So these folks are already at, uh, are more susceptible to any kind of uh, virus or what have you, but this one being particularly deadly, this is the result, you know, toxic environments, toxic housing, all of this leads up to greater likelihood of COVID illness. And also we see it at the community level. And so I say this a lot. If you see a pattern at a community level that's geographically based in a neighborhood or that's based on a community that's not geographic, but it have similar qualities, when you see that on a population level, that is not the fault of an individual. That is never the fault of an individual. Yes, there's individual choice, but something is happening there that is working outside of the control of individuals. And so there's a lot of complex stuff that goes into why it is that these communities are bearing the brunt of COVID. And ultimately it roots back to 400 years of slavery, racism, racial oppression, and class oppression. I mean, there's no bones about it. So what are some, I know we profiled some nonprofits that are working to help people who are experiencing housing challenges. So tell us a few uh, who a few of those are that we've covered recently. So organizations that we have covered recently who are trying to do some good work around housing. Well, United Housing, obviously, they come to mind first. We just uh, did a story on them and also the city of Memphis, HCD, you know, Housing and Community Development, Paul Young's team. They're both kind of working on trying to encourage folks to, to buy instead of rent, which sounds a little crazy in COVID, right? But the reality is in a lot of places in Memphis, housing costs are cheaper to buy than to rent. So if you're in fear of housing costs, it's a solution. It shouldn't be, but it is. So anything else, anything else we've been covering interesting and high ground that you want to lift up before we, before we, I was going to say ring off, but before we call it a, call it a show. Uh, I'm excited about this new partnership with ACE Awareness. Uh, so we began at the beginning of October with our first kickoff, but essentially it's a 12 month, once a month series covering ACEs and trauma and childhood and how you know, what are some solutions? Who are the organizations playing in this space? How did we get here? What do we do about it? And I'm particularly uh, excited. Well, excited is the wrong word, but I'm particularly grateful, I guess, that we're doing it now in this era of COVID because it has never been more important to understand how trauma affects children and how to limit that trauma. I mean, kids, the whole world's being traumatized. Well, the whole country is being traumatized by this and kids are no exception. And so 
there's long-term ramifications for trauma in childhood. And I really think that this series will bring some good uh, some good awareness to the topic, but also to these organizations that are doing good work. I agree. So you're going to be the beneficiary of a new addition to, to the Memphis Metropolis show. Remember, going back to what we were saying a minute ago about planning issues being so technical, I got a new bell and it's called the jargon bell. <laughs> and so whenever I'm talking to anyone and there are things that we need to stop and define, I'm going to ring the bell. Hopefully it's not going to be too annoying for our listeners. So I'm going to ring it because I want you to talk about what ACEs are. Okay. Well, first off, I love this idea of the jargon bell. I'm a big, uh, a big fan of breaking down jargon and making it accessible to folks. So ACEs are adverse childhood experiences, essentially traumas that happen in childhood, significant traumas that can then affect an individual through their lifetime, but don't have to if there's proper intervention, right? And there's some specific uh, categories around these. So it's things like uh, un in unstable households in terms of parents who have been incarcerated, parents who have died, parents who are experiencing substance abuse, domestic violence, uh, homelessness would be another one. A lot of it has to do with the, the home environment and the community, the neighborhood environment. So essentially these, these traumas that can happen and how do we prevent them? How do we treat kids and heal kids after the fact and heal whole communities? I feel whole communities have experienced ACEs. And that's a conversation we're not having. Well, one of the things I know we're going to be writing about that I'm excited about is strategies to reduce the stigma to, to seeking out mental health support during this very difficult time. Yes, not just strategies, but, you know, what are the resources to do that? And I think one of the things that is most interesting to me that we've talked about that I'm excited to explore is the idea that you know, when you are a parent who doesn't have a ton of resources, it's hard to admit that because people already think you're a bad parent. You know, there's this element of, oh, you can't buy your kid everything or, oh, you live in subsidized housing or, you know, whatever the case may be, that you're already a bad parent. So how do you then on top of that admit that you're struggling and you're struggling to communicate with your child who is also struggling? And so, yeah, destigmatizing it and just talking about some organizations that can help parents, children, and the city in general. Well, Cole, thank you so much for joining me today. I've been talking to Cole Bradley, who's one of our new regular commentators. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXRFM. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Thanks for being here, Cole. Thank you, Emily. I had a great time. I'm looking forward to it. And I'll See everybody on the radio next week. <laughs> Bye, y'all. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. The show airs every Monday at 1, so I hope you'll check back next week. And stay tuned for Memphis Underground, coming up next. Thank you.